Hey there, good morning, Story family. How are we feeling today, Houston? Feeling good? All right. It's Championship Sunday in Houston, Texas, and whether you're here in person, a lot of people wearing uh, Astros orange jerseys uh, in the room today. I had my Astros jersey on during the music. Something just feels weird about preaching in it. I don't know why, but in case there's a Phillies fan in the house, I don't want that to be a stumbling block between you and Jesus today, okay? So uh, we are celebrating. We're probably a little tired. We're grateful for God's grace in the form of that extra hour of sleep last night. Amen. That came in handy for preachers across the city last night as we all hurriedly got to work on our sermons after the World Series was over at 11.30 last night. Just kidding. Uh, but it was what an what a exciting uh, week, uh, uh, just a great story that our Astros have uh, sort of lived over the past several years, a story of redemption. And even if you're not a fan of theirs, it's hard not to uh, love their story and uh, Dusty Baker and all the things that have happened. It's just awesome. And, uh, and so we're, we're excited. We're not just excited for the Astros today, however. There's a lot going on in the life of our church that we're excited about. Uh, for the last month or so, really, we've been celebrating all that God's done to take us through uh, this adversity we've been through over the last year plus, year and a half, not just to teach us how to survive it, but how to thrive in adversity. And this is a lesson we've learned as a community that I think will serve us well in the future because adversity comes and goes in waves and seasons. When it rains, it pours, they say, and next time we go through a storm, we'll know for sure that we can trust on uh, God's promises and, and stand firm on those, no matter what the world throws at us. And God has shown us just a better way through all this, y'all. I mean, it was like a year ago when the story's future was absolutely uncertain. And uh, a year ago today, I would have told you, I have no idea what the future holds. I am not really sure if the story has a future, we don't have a place to go in seven weeks when we're getting, uh, you know, evicted or, or invited out of our other home. And, and like, it's like, what do we do? What do we do? We had nowhere to go. And uh, we know that God came through with this awesome, quirky, beautiful space that used to be the fourth Church of Christ scientist for several years, several decades. And now it's the story's temporary home. But we've known this is a two-year lease. And we've had to keep our eyes open, and y'all know the whole thing. It's just, uh, we'll always look fondly on the time we've got in this space. This has been a wonderful a place to heal and grow again and just sort of get our feet under us as we look ahead to what's next. But we can't stay here forever, so we've been looking, and God has, uh, it looks like God has made a way for us to have a home that won't require us to keep bouncing around from place to place every couple of years, paying rent, paying some landlord money that's just kind of wasted money in the end. I mean, you're just paying until the lease is up and look for a new one. And y'all, that life is a struggle. Fewer and fewer churches, I'm sorry, fewer and fewer landlords are even renting to churches at all anymore. And so the, the idea that God would provide a way for us to claim a home, and not just any home, but a more permanent home, uh, almost next door to the place where we began um, seven, eight, almost eight years ago now, believe it or not, is just a miracle. I mean, it's, it's all miraculous how God has put this together. And, and you all know by now, if, you've, if, you, if this isn't your first Sunday, if it is, just humor us today. We're sort of inside baseball a little bit today. We're just celebrating what God's doing in our community. Next week, we'll get back to normal with a new series of messages. And, and I can't wait for that. But right now, we're just rejoicing. And I don't think we celebrate enough for what God does when he comes through like this. And so what's happening is God's making a way for us to claim a home 
that is currently and has been for 75 years called Bethany. Bethany Christian Church, uh, 3223 Westheimer Road. Um, and if this is the seventh time you've heard this, I'm sorry. But uh, this is a three and a half acre property almost compared to, just for comparison's sake, to get your head around it, we've got one acre here, so more than three times the acreage and 50,000 plus square feet of ministry space, interior space compared to 15,000 square feet here compared to 6,000 square feet where we began um, and we were last year in that, in that building. That's uh, quite an upgrade. Um, you know, uh, the, the parking lot is something I hear a lot of people talking about. <laughs> parking lot has 200 plus pristine spaces right there compared to how many do we have here? Zero. There you go. Zero parking spaces. Nowhere to go but up, baby. And uh, God's got us. And uh, all of this has been made possible by the grace of God, the sheer audacious, out-of-this-world grace of God, um, as evidenced in this campaign that we started uh, a month ago. And I stood here and told y'all a month ago that we had 17 leaders that had already submitted their commitments and that we were already 39% of the way there because those 17 commitments were relative to the norm of pretty large commitments up front. And uh, then we just started praying. And all of us, y'all, we all started praying and thinking about what we could do for five years, how much we could invest in this story's mission and community and this new forever home for us. And I've got some updates for you, okay? So a month since we announced the campaign, and in the first weekend after last week's Commitment Sunday, we've now received uh, from 17 a month ago to 156 commitments, totaling $18.3 million, which is, yes, <laughs> praise God. I'm over, overwhelmed with this, with y'all's generosity. Y'all, our annual, for if you're new here, like our annual revenue is about $2 million. And so to do a five-year campaign like this over and above average or regular giving is just demonstrates such a generous heart and this idea that we're all on mission together. And so $18.3 million, which is 73% or so of the way there, or as I like to think of it, we're one mattress mac tithe short. <laughs> so if anybody has a mattress mac connection... Let them know you're still supposed to tithe on gambling winnings, okay? <laughs> There's no such thing as dirty money. God can wash it right off. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm a little troubled by your response to that joke. <laughs> just to be clear, there is such a thing as dirty money. Okay, anyway. This is all cause for a celebration. One of the ways we've been celebrating is by hearing the stories of people who call the story home. And uh, one of the stories we're going to hear today is from a friend of mine uh, who is also a pastor, but he's not a pastor at this church officially, although he's served in a pastoral capacity at times by preaching and doing other things. But many of you know him and his wife, Anne. Anne serves on the board of directors here at The Story, and uh, I'm just honored to, to have him as a friend and part of this community. So y'all help me welcome John Hopper to the front. Well, good morning. Well, for some of you, I'm, I'm a familiar face. I've uh, led communion a number of times, preached a few times, and led some classes here at the story. And doing that kind of thing is not unfamiliar to me. I've been in full-time ministry for some 25 years. I pastored a church here in Houston for 
16 years, and, and now I'm part of a ministry that has me speaking in different churches and um, interacting with different churches, and I, I share that with you not for you to really know about me, but to give you a little context about the things that I want to share about the story. Um, because from my experience and from my perspective, ministry perspective, the story is a, it's an uncommon church. It's not your normal church. And so I'm going to give you a few reasons why I, I think that. So first of all, it's clear to me that the leaders here at the story and Eric are not in this to build their own kingdoms. Now, they want a church, right, that's growing. They want a church that uh, uh, has an expanding influence, but that's not what they're fixated on. So Eric's super engaging, right? He's got great presence. He's a charismatic leader. And a, a lot of people with that gift, their whole intent is to go big, to get in the lights, to be on the billboard, to have the biggest church in, right? And yet I never get that sense from Eric or the rest of the leaders. In fact, what you hear Eric or Gio speaking of often is their desire to develop other leaders, to give other leaders a chance to develop as, as preachers and teachers and, and that kind of thing. That displays a great deal of humility that's not common. You won't find that many places. Secondly, the story, I would say, is, is, is rare in terms of the teaching it provides. So the story really sees the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation as, as the Word of God. It's truly the Word of God, right? So as the invaluable, unchanging Word of God. Now, there's a number of churches in Houston that I would say that take that same perspective. But what is rare about the story is that it's willing to preach from any part of the Bible, even the boring parts that Eric often refers to, like Leviticus or something like that, right? Like, they're not afraid to preach from any part of it and even to go into those controversial issues. Because most churches, they're going to preach about only what's non-controversial. Or if they do, if they deal with the fiery topics, right, of, of maybe abortion or same-sex relationships, they do it with a shaming stick. And you don't get that here at the story. There's truth and grace that is preached. And I think that's so key when we consider how sort of thorny life is, that uh, the situations of life are not all the same, and, and it requires, yes, truth, but it requires it with grace, and you get that here at the story. You won't find that many places. Now, the third thing is, if there's one thing that I've seen that's common among churches is it's this pull, this ever-present pull, to just be uh, focused on the people that are already here, the committed ones. So in any church body, you've got people that are dying, people that are being born, people that are getting married, people's relationships that are falling apart. You've got people that are getting sick. Like that alone takes a lot of energy from the staff. And then if you say, I'm going to have a men's ministry, a women's ministry, a children's ministry, a youth ministry, right? Suddenly, the, the whole staff's focus can be just on the people who are already here to the ones who are already committed. But I'm here to tell you that that's the death knell of the church. When a church becomes only focused on the people who are already here, and they lose an eye for the people who aren't here yet, it begins a slow, sudden death. And so I know you've heard many, many times Eric and Gio say that the story's mission is to inspire non-religious non Houstonians to follow Jesus. 
And I think you see that that's their aim. That's sort of the driving mission there. Their eye is on those who aren't here yet. That's why there's a number of people who were once skeptical about the church or burned about the church who now find the story home, or those who are still skeptical, but they still find themselves attracted here. It's because of that focus on the mission, a mission that goes beyond just the inside of these walls, but outside it as well, and that too is rare. Now, if there were an untold number of churches like the story, throughout Houston. If there were a dozen of them in in River Oaks, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for us to spend the money to make the investment in a site like Bethany. But the truth is, there aren't a lot of churches like the story, and I don't know of any like it in River Oaks. Now, it would be nice, right, if the cost of doing ministry in River Oaks wasn't so expensive? (laughs) That would be nice. Um, And I get that. But God knows what it takes to do ministry in River Oaks, and he's not scared off by that. He has the resources, and a lot of those resources he's given to us that we might join in what he is doing. And so um, I'm here to testify this morning that the story is a, it's a rare church. That means that at this time, we really have a sort of a special opportunity to be a part of what God wants to do going forward in this area, in this part of the city at this time. Thanks. Thank you, uh, John. I'm really humbled and honored uh, by those words that you shared. And, and uh, you know, I think John shared those with some trepidation because it seems a little bit like we're sort of tooting our own horn, kind of. And, and that's far from the point that John's making. If you hear what he's saying, he's saying there's an underlying something that makes this place special. It's not the address or the neighborhood, or whether it's here at Museum District or River Oaks. It's not about the zip code. It's not about the, who's speaking or the message or the music or whatever. It's not about the programming that makes a place special. So if it's not that, then what is it? Well, all I can tell you is that the story has always had this special feel that John's describing regardless of where we've been. Eight years ago at our first ever service at the Armadillo Palace, the story was special then and there. The story was a... (laughs) Is that the Armadillo? You see it now? The story was a special place at our second ever service the following month in the Heights Bingo Hall of all places where, you know, we've had several events over the years and and the story has been special even there. The story was special when we started and opened officially in the gymnasium at our, the church that, that gave us birth, St. Luke's, and uh, where we saw so much growth and so many awesome memories were made there. And the story remained a special place when we moved places across the parking lot into that, the new building that we called home for five years or so. And we're forever grateful to the church that gave us birth. The story was a special place when our Timber Grove campus hosted their first services in a brewery of all places, Eureka Heights Brewery in the Heights. And the story was a special place when we opened a grand opening during a pandemic at 8200 Washington Avenue, where our brothers and sisters gather even now, right now, 
in Timbergrove, and Pastor Kale is preaching to them live today. And so how can the same place be equally special and, and awesome and unique in different places? Well, there must be a common denominator. The common thread in all of those places and all those different times is, is not the staff or the name of the church or the, even the mission, really. It's, it's Jesus himself. And I have found that wherever churches and disciples of Jesus lift up his name, with no shame, with no hesitation, just unabashedly lifting up the name of Jesus, even in an increasingly secular world that's often wanting to silence this kind of enthusiastic religion, right? That he shows up. It's his presence that makes it special. It's his presence that makes any community extraordinary. It's his presence that makes the story uh, special in that way, the way that we've all experienced it as well. <clears throat> now, Ever since Jesus changed my life in 2013, it's been like going immediately from darkness to light. He's given my life purpose and hope. I was traveling through this life with just utter darkness and meaninglessness. I was living for myself, a hedonistic sort of outlook, and whatever wasn't serving my purposes or my pleasures, it wasn't good for me. And Jesus wrecked me, disavowed me of that notion in 2013, transformed my life, and set me up with real purpose. And after that experience in 2013, he healed my marriage to, y'all know her as Pastor Gio. I don't call her Pastor Gio at home. She's just Gio <laughs> to me. And healed our marriage and set our family on a path to move our family across the country to come to Houston from Kansas City with a six-year-old girl who's now like six feet tall up here singing this morning and singing backup vocals, and our four-year-old boy, little baby boy, who's now a grown man practically, and he's grown up with all of you here at this story. And that's, that's been part of our journey together, and, and I'm so grateful that Jesus saved me from the darkness, and now I can think of no better way to spend my life than leading other people to have that same kind of experience with him. That's all I want. It's like I always want more of Jesus, but I want everybody I know to have more of Jesus. And that's what gave rise to the mission that we claim at the story to inspire non-religious people to follow him. So one of the sweetest moments in the past uh, year or so was when things got the most desperate, when we were the most afraid. And either because she couldn't sleep at night or because she was just that devoted to prayer, Gio would get up before dawn and she would pray, asking God, what's next for us? What should we do? And one morning, I noticed after her prayer was over that she sort of had a different look on her face. Every spouse knows each other when you're there together for that many years. And I said, what's going on? Why do you look different? And she said, when I was praying today, the Lord laid something on me that finally got through to me. She said, Jesus came to her in her prayer and told her, you've been too worried for too long. You need not worry anymore. Jesus told her to remember that Bethany was like a second home for him. Now, this is at the point in time where we were trying to rent Bethany's gym for a couple of years to have a place to heal for a minute. We didn't even know Bethany was interested in selling at this point in time. And, and Jesus told her, remember, Bethany was like a second home for me because it's where my best friends live. And she came away from that prayer knowing that we didn't have to worry about finding the right place to go anymore. All we needed to think and worry about and be obsessed with and occupied with is fostering our friendship with Jesus, being friends of Jesus. Because wherever he shows up, wherever his friends are, that becomes a truly unique and special place. 
Now, in the New Testament, there is a place called Bethany. And Bethany makes several appearances. Like, it's always Jesus' retreat center of sorts. It's his getaway place. Literally, when he turned over the tables in the temple. You remember that famous scene where he's just had enough and he just goes nuclear in the temple? It's like one of the scenes people remember most about him. Well, when they chased him out of the temple, he ran to Bethany. It was almost a mile east of Jerusalem. It still is. It's still there. It's got a, a giant gray retaining wall through it now because of the geopolitical realities there in the Holy Land. It's, I think, like a tenth of it is Israel, and 90% of it is, 87% of it is Palestinian territory officially. It's, it's a mess, but it's still there, a mile, almost a mile east, southeast of, of Jerusalem. It was a gated community. They've excavated the original sort of ancient town, and like 200 or so families called it home during the time of Jesus. And one of those families consisted of two sisters and a brother. Uh, Lazarus was the brother, and then Martha and Mary. Y'all know the stories of Lazarus and Martha and Mary, probably. Lazarus is the one Jesus brought back from the dead. Martha and Mary's famous stories of, you know, um, fighting over who's supposed to do the work and things like that. And, of course, uh, Mary of Bethany also uh, anointed Jesus' feet with perfume. Now, we know more about Mary of Bethany than we do, like, nine out of the 12 disciples of Jesus like she is featured that often in the Gospels. They're a key family in Jesus' life. This is what Jesus meant when he told Gio in her prayers, that's where my best friends live. Speaking of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in particular. Now, there's a couple of stories I want us to look at just briefly as part of this message. In Luke chapter 10, we find this story of Jesus coming through town, coming to Bethany with his followers in tow. So he sends a messenger ahead to Martha and Mary and says, we're coming to your house, be ready. And that meant more than just Jesus and his 12 disciples. That meant his 12 disciples and their families, those, those that were bringing families with them. And, and then the inner circle of uh, followers, he had multitudes following him everywhere. So a huge crowd of people were coming to Martha and Mary's house which would be a big deal anytime, anywhere. But in a first century hospitality culture, like the Judean culture that Mary and Martha knew, that meant especially a heavy burden for women. It was women's job primarily to prepare the house, the water that everyone would need to drink and wash up with, the food that everyone would need to eat, and have a clean place for everyone to sit and rest. There's a lot of work to be done, right? And so when Jesus shows up before the rest of the crowds get there, uh, or they're maybe outside, gathering outside, but Jesus is inside, and Martha's busy doing all the work that has to be done, and Mary sits herself down right in front of Jesus and just listens to what he has to say. And Mary and Martha, you know, seemingly go back and forth about this. That's the subtext of the story, that Martha is just glaring at Mary, like she is just staring daggers. Has anyone ever looked at you that way? Husbands? Husbands in the room? Anyone? Anyone ever looked at you? Or anyone who's got a mother that has the glare. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, when you see it, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. Like, that's the glare. Martha's shooting Mary. And then she complains to Jesus this way. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up with me uh, to Luke chapter 10. And I'll start in verse 40. <clears throat> she came to Jesus, Martha came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what's better, and it will not be taken from her. Now, how many of you have ever felt in your heart a soft spot for Martha? 
truly. Like, this is Thanksgiving month. Let's be real. Everybody's worried about a multitude of people descending upon your house uh, all at once, needing food and water and fresh linens or whatever. Like, and oftentimes that burden falls uh, unfairly, let's say, to an unfair degree on the shoulders of women. A lot of us should have compassion for Martha. Jesus, I think, had compassion for Martha. He never diminished the work she was doing. He didn't say you shouldn't be doing the work. He just said what's going on with Mary right now is special. And he wanted Martha, I think, to recognize that by doing the work she was doing, she was setting Mary free to experience her Savior. And by resenting Mary for not doing the work she was doing, she was missing an opportunity to rejoice in what was happening in Mary's heart. And that Mary was being transformed in that moment from a mere believer into a disciple. Martha, in her busyness and her resentment, was missing it. And I think sometimes churches take on a Martha mentality because there's work to be done and there's nothing wrong with the work that we're doing. There's budgets to be met. There's a mortgage to be paid. There's, or there will be soon for us. There. And there's, there's you know, uh, programs and budgets and, and, and all kinds of things to be taken care of. And so what happens is we look at church membership as a method of adding to the workforce. We need more people to come help us make this budget. We need more people to come. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm saying we would say that, okay? So we, need, <laughs> we need more people to come and share the load, and that's easily the mentality that we have, and it's almost spot on. It's almost right because there's nothing wrong with doing the work of the church, but what that mentality is missing is what I would call just a component of discipleship. The value of discipleship is something we've discovered in a deep way over the last year or two at the story, all right? And so when you have the mentality of a disciple and a disciple maker, instead of just sort of Martha's mentality, you begin to see the work of the church as valuable, but only insofar as it is a means to a greater end. And so the work of the church isn't the end goal in and of itself. It is instead the means by which we get to make disciples. And so people who are convinced of Jesus, who have had the opportunity to sit at Jesus' feet, we are just relishing his presence, but he sends us to do the work so that others can come and sit at his feet. And when they come and sit at his feet, we don't grumble, we don't complain, we don't go, but what about them? Or what about me? We rejoice. And that's what Jesus was concerned about Martha um, missing, right? So uh, John 11 gives us a second story I want to look at that's sort of the reverse of this. It's a really sweet turn of events. If you want to turn one gospel over, one book over to John chapter 11, what, what's happening in this story is the famous story of Lazarus's death. And here, this is after what's happened before in Luke. And this is uh, the, peop, the, the Bethany family, Mary and Martha, had sent word to Jesus saying, Lazarus is on his deathbed. You got to get here and heal him before he dies. Jesus doesn't get there in time. Lazarus dies. Martha and Mary, grief-stricken, still have to play the role of uh, hospitality and, and welcoming the community. Because if you've ever been a part of a small community, you know the minute a loved one dies, everyone in town does the one thing you wish they wouldn't, which is come over to your house and squat for a few days. <laughs> and they, I'm, I'm from a small town. I saw this over and over. They fill your house with with food and noise and, you know, life, which is probably good for us when we're grieving, but it doesn't feel good all the time. We just kind of 
we want to wind down and, and the duty of hospitality weighed heavily on Martha and Mary. Well, in the midst of their grief and the work they had to do to be hospitable to the whole town, they hear that Jesus is coming. Jesus is just outside and he's on his way to their house. Martha and Mary both hear this, but I want you to pay attention at what happens next. This is verse 17 of John chapter 11. On Jesus' arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Martha and Jesus have this great interaction. We don't have time to get into it today. And Jesus eventually brought Lazarus back from death. But, but I wanted to see what's happening in this point in the story. Because Martha's house is yet again full of people. The custom is that they're taken care of by Martha and Mary. And in the prior story, it would have been Martha rushing around to get everything done and Mary rushing out to be with Jesus. But this time, once Mary has had her moment with Jesus and has grown from being a mere believer at the feet of Jesus to a follower of Jesus, a disciple who makes disciples, Mary stays home. And I know it's subtle. Maybe I'm reading a little bit into this, but I love the idea that they exchange glances yet again, but instead of Martha's glaring at Mary in a judgmental or condescending way, in this moment, it's Mary looking at Martha and giving her a nod of approval. You go. You go be with him. I'll stay back. There was still work to be done. There were still people to care for, look after. But Mary bore the burden this time so that Martha could go in her grief and experience Jesus. This transformation we see in Mary of Bethany is what happens when somebody spends time at the feet of Jesus and a believer becomes a disciple. Disciples know what it means for new believers to come and sit at the feet of Jesus, and disciples become servants who take joy in facilitating that for the sake of others. And that's what Mary did, and that is kind of the secret sauce of the story church. And it really only accounts for like 30% of our congregation, I think, about 70% of our congregation. Basically, what y'all do is you come and you sit at the feet of Jesus and worship. We all worship Jesus together. We learn about Jesus together, and, and we, we just enjoy his presence with us. But listen, there's another like 25, 30% of this community that got here an hour or two before you and got the lights on and got the air on when it's working and, and got the donuts out and the coffee out and, and the kids' rooms ready and the music rehearsed and everything good to go. There's, there's a whole workforce of people who have jobs of their own and families to take care of and duties to achieve at home, but, and yet they come early, they stay late, they make a way, they're, they're the disciples. And they used to be like you and they used to sit at the feet of Jesus until one day it soaked in and they realized that it's not about me. It's about him and bringing others to him. And one of the best teams we've got going at the story in this regard is our student ministries team. We have so many students now. It's probably the fastest growing ministry at the story. And we have one paid staff person, Dylan. Y'all pray for Dylan. He's got way too much work to do. He's one, churches our size have entire teams of paid staff. We have one. And he has built a team of volunteers. Most of his regular volunteers do not have 
children in the student ministry. They are sacrificing to serve kids that aren't even theirs to serve or to raise. Why? Because they once sat at the feet of Jesus, they see what it's worth, and they want to spend their lives, their, all their free time on the weekends, leading children and students to come and experience him in the same way at this formative time of their youth. The other story I wanted us to hear today is from a young woman who is a friend of our family. She's a friend of my daughter's, and uh, she and uh, she's this like feels like family to me. She's been over to the house a lot for you know parties and sleepovers and things with with Joel. Her name is Mary Catherine. I asked Mary Catherine to come and share with us today. This is not easy to do for anyone, much less a ninth grader who's standing up in front of a room full of mostly strangers. So y'all help me welcome Mary Catherine to the front. Um, so hi, I'm Mary Catherine. Currently, I'm a ninth grader at Episcopal High School. I always grew up in a Christian household where we went to church every Sunday. My faith was never really my own, though, but my faith was what my parents had. I was a Christian because they were, not because I believed everything about the church. As I went through my middle school years, my faith started deteriorating. That changed when I started, was in eighth grade. When I started eighth grade, I thought it would be my golden year at middle school the best, most fun, and drama-free year. At least that's what I had heard from my older friends about their eighth grade year. The year started off like what I had envisioned, but once the second semester came, that all changed. I became tied up in a lot of school drama that drove me to the point of questioning my existence and wishing I had not been born. I hated myself. I didn't recognize the person I had become. I didn't tell any of this to my parents or to my friends at school until I was close to my breaking point. It was there at my lowest that I realized that I had not stopped to pray to God for help or realized that he was right there with me in my troubles. I was too indulged in my self-pity that I disregarded the one thing that should have been on my focus, God and my relationship with him. Last spring at Foundations, the student leaders, Macy, Sheena, Cam, and Michael, started their testimonies one Sunday night, and I realized my approach during this dark season was all wrong. After they shared, I was able to gather with the leaders and other middle school girls and talk about my struggles during small group. This evening was the start of me rebuilding the, my relationship with God and Jesus. I started to do daily devotionals, pray more often, and worship him. I'm so excited to continue my faith journey in my, the new campus, which all bring new opportunities to the story. I'm looking forward to our upcoming student ski trip and continuing to be a part of the school student ministry going forward. I hope I can continue to share my story and the things I have learned with future students for years to come. Did you hear what Mary Catherine said? She said, I, I wished I hadn't been born at a time. I hated myself. I didn't recognize the person I've become. Look at her now. Standing here confidently, standing here assured of God's love for her and the purpose that he's created her with. Can you imagine the impact she's having on other ninth graders at Episcopal, the impact she and others in our student ministries will have for a generation to come because of the seeds being planted now, because there are people at the Story Church that have adopted the mission of this church, not as some kind of a customer service setup where my church that I joined serves me and my needs, but instead... They've adopted that mission as their own. 
How can we inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus? How can Mary Catherine inspire non-religious students to follow Jesus? How can all of us be a part of this as disciples of Jesus Christ? That's the beauty of this place, this mission, and this Lord we call Jesus. We're going to share a time of communion now, and John's going to come and serve us in a minute. And as you bring, as you come forward for communion, if you missed Commitment Sunday last week or if you told us last week you needed more time, I think everybody was given commitment cards when you came in, and this is another opportunity to bring those forward with you to contribute and be a part of this awesome thing that's happening in the life of the Story Church here in Houston, Texas, that's impacting generations to come in Jesus' name. Those cards can be placed in these baskets on these tables up here or on the baskets uh, on the outsides as well. And if you need more time still, that's okay too. You can check that box and let us know by bringing those cards forward this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this church and for the mission you've set before us. We thank you for every opportunity that you give us, not just to sit at your feet and worship you and just relish your presence, but every opportunity you give us to serve, to lead others, to allow others to come and experience you as well. We thank you for Bethany, for your friends who lived there, and we pray that we would always uh, keep front and center our friendship with you so that you would be with us, continuing to make this church a special place. We pray in your name. Amen.